Uh, good morning. Let's go ahead and uh, bar heads one more time and pray before we hear God's word. Father God, we come to you confessing that we cannot make ourselves hunger for you. That is the one thing that we are incapable of doing in our fallen state. We can't make ourselves yearn for you, and we can't make our hearts desire you. But as we just prayed, the greatest grace you give us is to open our eyes to see you for who you are, to see that being near you is our chief good, that being near you is our deepest happiness and joy. That is the revolution, the transformation that we most desperately need in our lives. So we ask that the preaching of your word today will be instrumental, will be part of that transformation in our life. We confess to you and we readily acknowledge that it is your spirit alone through the preaching of your word that can transform us. So we ask that you would do this work in and through us. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Um, So I want to continue sort of the format I took last week. That is, I'm just... It's been hard to come up with subjects and topics as we're not on a series. And when we're going through a series like Nehemiah or James or Thessalonians or so forth, or the Ten Commandments, it's, it's, you know, we get assigned, Pastor and I take certain portions of the scriptures and we have it to sort of chew on for several weeks and prepare. But when left to our own devices to come up with a topic as well as a message, sometimes I spend an inordinate amount of time thinking about Topic matter. So, uh, I, I, it, so this is just to say, um, for the next few weeks before we enter into our Advent series, I'm going to follow a little bit of the pattern that I took last week, uh, which is to share with you some of the reflections during my sabbatical, especially based on Romans chapter eight, six, seven, and eight, about what it means to live a spirit-filled life. And we read that passage, Ephesians. We won't get to it today, but I wanted to kind of plant it in your minds, because we'll come to it in a couple more weeks um, in February. So I want to talk a little bit about, once again, the fight of faith that I talked about. What, it is, what is it that happens to us when we don't live a life filled with the Spirit? When we are not led by the Spirit, what, is, what are the symptoms? What are the issues that we face that makes us drift away from God? So I want to talk a little bit more about that, and it actually ties into a continuation of what I started last week also about um, why we have such an up-and-down kind of faith. And last week we looked at the nation of Israel and why they went through these cycles, these vicious cycles of peace, prosperity, then rebelling and idolatry, then only to be disciplined by God, then to cry out again, and God delivers them, gives them a season of peace, and they enter that cycle over and over again. And we want to continue to explore why that was and how that speaks to us, because all of us have experienced that, sort of that yo-yo spirituality. And last week, we focused on the fact that part of the reason the Israelites struggled the way that they did was they failed to fulfill or fully follow God's commandments. They, they were not fully committed to God's plan for them. God's plan for them was for them to drive out the Canaanites completely. And the Israelites tried. They tried to do what God commanded them to do. But because it was hard, because it was difficult, they sort of compromised. They stopped midway. 
they realized it was easier to subjugate the people living there rather than driving them out completely. And so they didn't fully commit to God's plan for them. And because of that, the nations remained where they were, and they became a thorn in their sides. Their gods became a, a thorn in their sides, and they worshipped their gods. So their idols became a, a stumbling block. And God used that to test them. And so it is the same for us. Whenever we are partially committed to God's plans and purposes in our life, when we are partially committed to God's plan and purposes in our life, we sort of stop midway when we hit a hard, hard area in our life. We, we sort of go this far, but no farther when we realize that it means giving up some of our control of our life or giving up some of what makes us happy in this world. Maybe perhaps it's the fleeting pleasures of sin. or Whatever the case may be, when we hit a roadblock that's a little bit difficult, we tend to settle in rather than pursuing fully God's plan and calling in our life, right? Hebrew tells us we have not resisted sin to the point of shedding blood. It means, you know, most of us don't go all the way and sort of in our fight for holiness. We sort of settle down somewhere in the middle, like the Israelites said. And that's some of the reasons why we struggle with that. So I want to continue on that idea. Another, we read in today's passage, another reason why the nations of Israel struggled was not only because they sort of stopped halfway, it's also because they lost the role models that were guiding them, that were showing them what it meant to live a fully committed life. Okay? So we're going to come to that in the second part of the message. Should just continue it now and finish it while I'm at it, probably. Perhaps. Well, we'll come back to that. Um, but I do want to go back to last week. Last week, I shared with you that one of the things that I did during my three months of sabbatical, which, once again, I want to thank you for, and it was through the gracious um, space that this church community provided for me, was to diagnose my state of being. Um, I was in a state of malaise. I, and I love that word because that's how I felt like. I, I, was in a, I was in a sort of a spiritual stupor. I was not right. Amen. <laughs> yes, we noticed that, Pastor Sam. You just weren't right the last few months before your sabbatical. No, in my heart, I just knew something was off. And as I spent time prayerfully asking the Holy Spirit to shine his light, to, to diagnose the state of my being. And, and I shared with you uh, one of the things that I realized that, uh, as Romans 8 tells us, though we are saved by Christ, though through faith in Christ, in his life, death, and resurrection, and through Christ's intercession for us even now, we have the power to live life pleasing to God. Okay? What a wonderful news. But even if we have the power to live a life pleasing to God, we often choose not to. And instead of living as people who are set free from the chains that bound us, we live as if we are slaves still. And I, I, the ladies told me that their Nehemiah Bible study echoed, I guess, that lesson as well. And I guess Lonnie and Esther were telling me, I, I, me and Kelly Minter, yeah, we're, we, we, we're very similar, I guess. I, we're channeling each other um, for various reasons. I don't know who she is, just that's a, that's a joke. Um, but I found myself not living my life led by the Spirit of God. Okay? Now, I don't know if you guys feel like you're living your life filled with the Holy Spirit 
that if you're living your life being led by the Spirit of God, because the Bible tells us, Roman 8, those who are led by the Spirit of God are the children of God. So the diagnosis in my heart was that I was not filled with the Holy Spirit. Though I was free and though God was willing to fill me with the Spirit, I, for whatever reasons, was not filled with the Holy Spirit. And because of that, I was still living as a slave to my sinful nature. I am not a slave to my sinful nature. I've been justified by faith and set free. It is like a prisoner whose chains have been set free, whose chains have been unshackled, but who still chooses to live bound and goes into the prison while the doors are wide open. And that was me, right? I was not living filled with the Holy Spirit. And the biggest symptom of that, and the biggest symptom of that, the point that I tried to drive home last week, was that when you are not living led by the Holy Spirit, when you are not living being filled by the Holy Spirit, it's not that you get more cranky, which I I did become. It's not that you become less patient. It's not that you become more covetous or greedy or more lustful. All of those things are symptomatic. What really happens, and we looked at Romans 8, right? If you, uh, Romans 8, 5. What really happens is that I become hostile to God. That I start looking at the things of God, and they not only are they not be, uh, pleasing to me or desirable, they become disdainful. And I start despising the things of God, and my mind and heart becomes hostile to God, as if I was still a slave, as if I was still not saved. Let me read you Romans 8, 5 through 8 once again. Those who live according to the flesh have their minds set on what the flesh desires. But those who live in accordance with the Spirit have their minds set on what the Spirit desires. The mind governed by the flesh is death. My mind during that season of life was death. But the mind governed by the Spirit is life and peace. The mind governed by the flesh is hostile to God. It does not submit to God's law, nor can it do so. Those who are in the realm of the flesh cannot please God. And then Paul says, this is not you, Sam. Once again, I say, I'll say it again. This is not description of who I am. But if I'm not living by the Spirit, I still live like this, though that's not me. And that was Paul's point. Think about, and so the point that I want to sort of elaborate on that, what happens to us when we are hostile to God? What happens to you and me? What happens to you and me when we are not filled with the Spirit? When we are not living our lives led by the Spirit? Why does our mind turn hostile to God? Why do the things of God become disdainful rather than desirable, right? Why does doing the right thing, doing the good thing, why is it being humble and considering the needs of others become more difficult or unpleasant when it should be something that all of us who are in Christ should aspire to? What happens? What is the cycle? So I want to spend the first uh, part of today exploring some of the uh, consequences of what it means to live um, as slaves to our sinful nature. Now, think with me for a moment. Uh, think about a conversation you've had with an, a non-believer, a, a, uh, someone who is not a Christian. Okay. Now, think about a recent conversation or maybe past conversation that you've had with a non-Christian, and maybe you were talking about God. When you when you compare yourself, okay, as a Christian, okay, and, and I'm assuming here that everyone is a believer, and, and if not, you can kind of listen from the other side of the question, but I believe, I, looking at everyone, I think everyone here will consider themselves a Christian. Uh, 
what is the difference between you or me and an unbeliever? Okay, what is the primary difference? Okay, now I, the, here are some of the things that I've heard when we're talking about Christianity or, or God or Jesus was someone who was not a Christian. These are, these are real conversations I've had, and these are things that I've been told in, in, in several variations. So I'm trying to kind of uh, summarize it in succinct uh, thoughts. The first thing that I've heard several times is, as I don't want to believe in God, and, and I've actually heard this in, in, in the oddest circumstances. You could ask me about it after the sermon. It was in the weirdest situations, one particularly that is funny but inappropriate for the pulpit. But uh, they'll say something along the lines of, I can't believe in a God who would send people to hell simply because they don't believe in Jesus. Okay? So I've heard this in various iterations. One will be something along the lines of, I remember one Asian person telling me, I can't believe that all of my ancestors who lived thousands of years before, who, who didn't hear about Jesus, is in hell simply because they didn't get a chance to hear. You know, I, I can't believe in a God who will send people to hell just because they don't believe in Jesus. Okay, that's sort of one thought of, uh, that I hear often by unbelievers. Um, that's just, that kind of God is unloving, and I, I don't want to believe in that God. Or another uh, sort of more ambivalent answer I sometimes get is, I, it's just I'm, not, I'm not interested, you know. It works for you. I'm happy for you. I'm not discounting it. I think it's great. I think people should have, you know, follow their hearts and passions. But, you know, for me, I'm good right now. I'm happy. My life is going well. I'm just not interested in religion, faith, whatever. I'm happy for you. Leave me alone. You know, let's go on to talking about something else. Okay? And then there's another group of people. And I've, I've heard this um, both in, in conversations that I've had, but also in radio interviews with a few other people. And I've heard this, especially during times of calamity or, or difficult loss. I sometimes hear people say, I envy Christians. I envy Christians. And they say it both sincerely and sort of um, like an like a intellectual snob a little bit, as if Christians are ignorant and, and they don't know better. So in both ways, sincerely and kind of as, a, as an intellectual snob, I hear sometimes people say, I envy Christians. You know, they look at me and go, I wish I could believe what you believe. Okay? Now, if they say it sincerely, it means that there's something about the faith that really seems to give you life and give you hope in desperate times. The sarcastic side of it is, I wish I could be ignorant like you. Like, I, could, I, wish, I, could, I wish I wasn't scientifically minded and, and believe in science and facts and am actually enlightened human being. I wish I could be a backwoods person like you that believes in these mythical things to comfort you. I, I wish. So both ways, I've heard people say, I envy Christians. So think for a moment yourself in comparison with someone who is not a Christian. Okay? Just seriously, give it a, just a thought for a moment. What is the difference? What is the great divide that separates us from those who don't believe? Is it our life? Is it the way we live? Is it the way we spend Sunday mornings? Right? I mean, we've, I, I, I don't need to make the ob- obvious observation that we're not particularly more moral or moralistic or however you want to say it, upright than, say, unbelievers. That's not necessarily the case. Although I think 
Christians have throughout history done great things for the larger society. Think about it. What is the great divide? I think the great divide is, um, is simply this, is that when we look at Jesus, okay, the person of Jesus, we as believers see one thing through the eyes of faith, and the unbeliever sees something else. Okay? The great divide between Christians and non-Christians is simply this. It's not that we're smarter, because we're not. I, I, I can promise you we're not. It's not we're better looking, and definitely, you know, it's not anything to do with us. The biggest difference is, is that when they look at Jesus, when they think about God and the person of Jesus, and we look at Jesus, we see different things, right? That's the fundamental, that's the great divide. We see the person of Jesus differently. To them, Jesus is a, a myth. Jesus is a historical figure who taught good teachings. He was a good man. He was an example of this and that. When we see Jesus, by God's grace, right, by God's grace, redeemed, regenerated, born again, uh, when we see Jesus through the faith that God gives us, we see Jesus as he is, the Son of God, God himself, right? Now, do we see Jesus, do we see Jesus because of something that we've done? No. The difference between us and an unbeliever is that we look at the same thing and we see something that they can't see. They see a distorted vision of who God is. We see God for who he is. And that is what it means to be born again. It means to see, see God. Because the world cannot see God for who he is. It's been blinded. Okay? So, what, what, is, what is it that I'm saying? What I'm trying to say is that when we don't live our lives filled with the Holy Spirit, when we don't live our lives led by the Spirit, we default to our sinful nature. And that sinful nature, part of the symptomatic problem, uh, part of the symptoms of that sinful nature, part of the, the biggest problem of living life that way is that we don't see God rightly. Okay? All this to say is when I was not living my life filled by the Holy Spirit, my vision of God became distorted. My vision of God became distorted. You know what is the easiest, one of the most discernible way that I can see that someone is not filled with the Holy Spirit or living life led by the Spirit is when they talk about God in a distorted way. When I hear people talking about Jesus or God in a very distorted way, we know that we're falling back into our unredeemed self because the sign, the, the, the biggest fruit of sort of being saved and redeemed is that we see the glory of God in Christ Jesus through the gospel. Amen? That's who we are. And when we don't have that, when we can't see it, as we're defaulting back to the way we were, we, we're being blind again. All right? Now, uh, let me read you a passage uh, that sort of captures this. What does it mean that we have a distorted vision of God? Romans 1.18, early in the chapter, Paul describes the state of human, human beings, the state of human beings apart from God's salvation. He says this, The wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godliness and wickedness of people who suppress the truth. So here it is. Who suppress the truth by their wickedness, since they, what may be known about God is plain to them because God has made it plain to them. For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made, 
so that people are without excuse, okay? So once again, I would say to those who say God sends people to hell for not believing in Jesus, I would simply say that the Bible never says that. The Bible says God sends, God judges people because they deny the truth and suppress the truth with their wickedness. Verse 21, for although they knew God, they neither glorified him as God nor gave thanks to him, but their thinking became futile and their foolish hearts were darkened. Listen, what is Paul describing as a way of life before Jesus, before we were saved? But if we're not being led by the Spirit, we still can live like this, even though that's not our case. Okay? Although they claimed to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images to make are made to look like a mortal human being in birds and animals and reptiles. In other words, instead of seeing God for who he is, we begin to project onto God who we are. All of our, uh, all of our weaknesses, all of our tendencies, we sort of project back onto God. So instead of God being God, we begin to see God as a distorted version of who we are. It's, a way that I think makes sense to me is sometimes when I'm not Right when I'm not, you know, filled with the Spirit and being led by the Spirit, my vision of God becomes me, Sam, with omnipotent, omnipotent powers. Okay, yeah, that's a scary thought. Yes, uh, imagine you. Imagine you. Is this is sort of the Bruce Almighty scenario, right? The movie. Imagine you yourself if you had omnipotent powers, right? If you were God, what kind of God would you be? How many of you guys think you'd make a pretty decent God? Be honest, come on. How many, Bruce Almighty, how many guys would make a pretty, pretty good God? Pretty compassionate? Yes? Come on, I know there's some of you in here that think, I think I would make a pretty good God for a week or so. Okay? But we begin to see God sort of as a projection of ourselves or human beings with unlimited power, and we have this... God who is either like a Santa Claus, like a parent who just can't say no to their kids. And I got to share this story. I I wrote this in here because um, one of the things that I've, um, one of the blessings of getting older, and there there are few, uh, the youth is wasted on the young, but one of the things that I've really have uh, noticeably seen in myself as I'm getting older is a deeper appreciation of my parents. Okay? Now, when you're young, your parents are, are the world. So all you parents with young kids, enjoy it. You know, enjoy your kids looking at you as if you were God incarnate, right? I mean, I used to tell you, my kids, when they were young, my boys, playing you know, video games like you know, EA Tiger Woods, they would be asking me questions like, oh, can you beat Tiger Woods in golf? I mean, <laughs> seriously, right? I mean, they seriously would be asked for them, it's like a logical question. Oh, there's this Tiger Woods. It's really good. But there's my dad. Dad, can you be Tiger Woods? And I'll be like, mm, no. Uh, enjoy those days because they will pass. But then you go through a season when you get older, when, you, when your parents, when you start seeing things in parents that aren't that appealing anymore, right? They start seeing you for who you really are, your, all your weaknesses and foibles. And my kids are kind of going through that stage. You know, they're, they're seeing, you know, they're seeing all of my inconsistencies and Esther's neuroticism. And, <laughs> just kidding. Just kidding. <laughs> uh, and, and, you know, they notice these things, and they, they say stuff like, well, you know, like Joshua. I say, well, Joshua, you know, this is waiting for you. A couple of years, 20 years on the road, this is what you're looking at. And he's like, no, I'm never going to get that. Well, 
you go through a season when your parents become more human, and then you kind of start to crit- be critical of them. And then you go through different seasons with your parents. But as my parents are both in their 70s, and as they become more fragile and weak, you know, you sort of embrace their humanness and all their mistakes. And what you see through it is, is how they try to love you and, and just in their limited strength and in their humanness and in their own frailties, they try to love you as best as they can. And, and uh, I, I am growing, I'm developing a greater appreciation of both my parents, but my mom especially as she's getting older. But my mom, as, as great as she is, you know, um, and Esther's my witness to this, she sabotages her own happiness at times. Now, I know she can't understand what I'm saying, so that's okay. She'll never hear this. But she sabotages her own happiness in this one particular way, and I just want to share this with you because it does make a point. And Esther, not, not so people can see, this is the truth. One of my mom's, one of my mom's uh, sort of thing that makes her the happiest is seeing me healthy and ha- healthy, 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 okay? But how my mom defines my health is by my weight, okay? <laughs> so for her, it simply is this, not with me, is that true? Yes. <laughs> so if I'm, if, I'm, if I'm looking good weight-wise, she's like, it makes her happy. She's really happy, genuinely happy. When I've gained some weight, and I have a tendency to do that because I eat when I'm stressed, and, you know, just recently, you know, I gained some weight, I put on some weight, and it's noticeable. My cheeks are puffier, you know, my neck's disappearing, my belly's protruding, and I, and I hate seeing my mom that way because when I see her, she won't say it, but sometimes it just shows. And there have been times when she would just break down and cry, right? She, she actually cries. She's like, Sam, so, uh, you know, why are you so fat? You know, break my heart. So for her, listen, no, she doesn't say that. Something like that, but nicer. But, so her happiness is seeing me thin and healthy. Her unhappiness is when she sees me fat and not healthy. But you know what my mom loves? She loves feeding me. Right? She just feeds me. Takes me out to Korean all-you-can-eat all barbecue. Makes me, she, she likes to see me eat. You know? And, and that's how... The reason I say this, that's how we project God to be. It's like God is us doing our best to be a good person with unlimited power. That's sort of our distortion of God. Either that or God is just an ambivalent, distant God. I mean, we have all these distorted visions of God. So simply to say, when we, are not being, when we are not filled with the Holy Spirit, when we are not being led by the Spirit, one of the biggest uh, symptoms or one of the biggest issues that we go through is that we have a distorted vision of God. Um, Matthew 25, 24, if you read the parable of the talents, you guys know the parable of the talents? Raise your hands if you guys remember the parable of the talents, which by the way is no longer the parable of the talents according to the new NIV. It's the parable of the bag of golds. Okay, did you know that? It's the bag of golds. I guess people didn't know what talents were, but it's now the bag of golds. Listen to what the man with the one bag of gold, one talent, said to his master when he gave account for what he did with it. Okay, this is his account, Matthew 25, 24. The man who had received one bag of gold came. Master, he said, I knew that you are a hard man, harvesting where you have not sown and gathering where you have not scattered seed. So I was afraid and went out and hid your gold on the ground, in the ground. 
see here is what belongs to you. Let me say this to you. Most of us, many of us in here, have the same problem that this one man with one talent or bag of gold has. And that is, we see God as a hard master. Okay? This is a fundamental problem with 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 us when we are not being led by the Spirit. We see God as a hard master and his demands as unpleasant, as onerous and as onerous and burdensome. Which I just combined to make onerousome. But uh, we see we see God we see God as a hard master. Now listen, this is this is you think, well that's not me. It is you. It's me. It's all of us. This is Martin Luther, the great reformer, right? The person Uh, credited with uh, really beginning the Protestant Reformation. This is Martin Luther, his description of his view of God before he was justified by faith. He said, I did not love, yes, I hated the righteous God who punishes sinners and secretly, if not blasphemously, certainly murmuring greatly, I was angry with God. This is you and me, okay? This is you and me. We have a distorted view of God. And this is what I want to say as we go into the second part, just real, real briefly. Do you know why? And this is my own diagnosis. This is a lot of coming from my own sort of reflection, but I believe it's true for many of us. Do you know why we have a hard time fully committing to the plans of God? How, how, let me, and you don't have to raise your hands, but I just want to put this question into your mind. Would you say if God asked you, and he knows the truth, right? I mean, he, he knows the truth. Or, or Wonder Woman with a lasso of truth was on you and was asking you. Okay, that's a, well, I don't know where that came from. Okay, and it was looking at you. Yes, I do not know where that came from. Uh, it was looking at you and said, Lonnie, Peter, are you fully committed to my will for your life? Okay, are you living life fully committed to my purpose and will, calling? Are you... All in. Are you fully committed, James? He's already answering. No, it's like, <laughs> you know, if he asked you a question, how would you answer? Okay? And you know why? If you answer no, and I don't know how many of you would answer no and how many of you would say, yes, I'm fully committed. Do you know one of the biggest reasons why we are not able to fully commit to God's plan for our lives? It's because we have a distorted view of God in this one particular way is that we are not convinced that God is, in a most profound way, absolutely committed to our deepest happiness and joy. Okay? Until, through the grace of God and through the Holy Spirit, that we, deep in our souls and spirits, can believe that Jesus Christ, God, is in the most profound sense, absolutely committed to your deepest happiness and joy. Until we get that into our spirits and our souls, we will never be able to fully let go of our lives to God. Let me just give you one example of a passage, and this is from Luke chapter 14, 26. And this is at the end of the chapter, end of the chapter, uh, where Jesus is talking about the cost of discipleship. Listen to what he says, okay? If anyone comes to me and does not hate father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, even their own life, okay? If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own life, 
Such a person cannot be my disciple. And whoever does not carry the cross and follow me cannot be my disciple. Okay? When you hear that, okay, when you hear that, does it move you to say, wow, that is a life I want. Jesus, you are the ultimate salesman. You are selling discipleship like no one can. Is that your reaction? How many of you read that passage and you goes, that sounds appealing. I want that. When I read that, you know what it sounds like? It sounds like a killjoy of a life. It sounds like a brutal, ascetic, monkish, hard life. And if I do it, I do it grudgingly. I do it because he holds the power of hell over me. <laughs> you guys are nodding. Some of you resonate with that, right? If there wasn't hell, man, oh boy, I'd be free to do what I want to do. But hate your life? Follow, carry your cross? Follow me? That does not sound pleasing. So we have this distorted vision of God as like the man with the one bag of gold. You're a hard master. I, you're a hard, hard master to follow. And deep inside, we follow God grudgingly. We come to church on Sundays grudgingly. Maybe not consciously, but subconsciously. Okay? Here's the thing. When by the grace of God, when by the grace of God, somewhere deep in our spirit, he shows us, not just theory, but in reality, he shows us that God is, in the most deepest sense, in the most profound sense, committed to my deepest happiness and joy, which is him. When I, when I, when I get that in my spirit, when, when the, by the grace of God, once again, it's not me, it's the spirit of God. When I get that and I read this passage, you know what I see? I don't see a... I don't see a hard taskmaster laying the rules. What he's saying is I see a, a God who loves me so much. He's pleading with me to say this is a path to your deepest joy. I'm willing to go to the cross to show you the deepest joy that you were created for. And I'm telling you, these trifling clam- the clamors of false lovers that want to temporarily fill your soul These things will not satisfy you, Sam. You were created for me. And unless you're liberated, unless you're liberated from the trivial and the good to get the best, unless you come after me with all of your heart, you won't experience the deepest joy that I have for you. This is is Christ, our Savior and Lord, pleading with a stubborn, rebellious child. To say, I'm speaking this with the greatest amount of love and compassion that I can, I can show you. You know, when, when that happens in your heart, when you read this no longer as a hard taskmaster, but a loving Savior pleading to give you what is your deepest happiness and joy, it changes things. It changes our willingness to live for God. But we can't get there unless we live life filled with the Holy Spirit. This is a fight. 
This is the fight of faith that we are fighting, brothers and sisters in Christ. It's not about becoming a better person. This is a fight. Okay, I have 10 minutes, 5 to 10 minutes. I just want to share briefly, go back to the original uh, beginning. So here are some ways that we can try to come into a more committed, fully committed uh, life with God. How we can take that leap of faith to fully commit ourselves to God. As I mentioned, one of the reasons that the nation of Israel struggled like the way they did is because they didn't fully commit to God's plan for them. They stopped halfway, or more than halfway. They did almost all the way, but they stopped because it was hard. Another reason, Judges 2, from the passage that we read today, it tells us that after that whole generation had been gathered to the ancestors, that is a generation of Joshua and the elders who lived with Joshua that had all passed away, another generation grew up who knew neither the Lord nor what he had done for Israel. Then the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord and served the Baals. In other words, Once the role models, people who were leading them in the ways of God, passed away, Israel lost their ways. And I just want to simply say this. One of the reasons that we have a hard time fully committing to a life, uh, fully committing to God in our life, is we we don't really know what that kind of life looks like. Okay? How many of you think, if you live your life fully committed to God, that it's going to somehow rob you of the happiness of the things you do? Like, if you like fantasy basketball, oh, that's out. If you like poker, well, that's out. Golf, that's out. Cycling, that's out. You know, what's left? Selling things, giving away things, you know, uh, not being able to enjoy. Th- I mean, how many, be honest, you know, I mean, is that you? Because that's me sometimes, right? Um, one of the reasons that we have such a hard time is we have such a perverted and distorted view of a, what life that is fully committed to God looks like. We don't. We, you know, during Jesus' day, and this is, I love this, Paul and so many times, Paul says, imitate me. And he says, look, 2 Thessalonians 3, 9, he says, we did this not because we do not have the right to such help. He's talking about working, you know, doing ministry without getting help from them. We did this not because we do not have a right to such help, but in order to offer ourselves as a model for you to imitate. Okay, again, he says in Hebrews six twelve, another passage. We do not want you to become lazy, Okay, how many of you are struggling with laziness, right? We do not want you to become lazy, but to imitate those who through faith and patience inherit what has been promised. Okay, Philippians 3.17, again, Paul. Join together in following my example, brothers and sisters, as just as you have us as a model to keep your eyes on those who live as we do. In other words, during Paul's days, people could say, well, what does it mean? I'm struggling with this uh, career thing. And they're like, well, here's, here's what people who are living life committed to God are doing. You learn from them, right? I mean, we learn from people. Did you know that God created us like sponges, human beings? We were created to influence and be influenced by people. Okay? Now, I think there's this perverse pride that we have in an individualistic society like ours about the amount of influence we admit to. Like, we think it's better if we're sort of like John Wayne, the, the, you know, the cowboy. I'm not influenced by anyone. I'm, I'm my own man. I'm my own woman. You know, I, 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 I can think for myself. I can, 
I can provide for myself and think for myself. And we sort of think of influence as a negative thing. But you know what? We are highly susceptible to influence. Do I, how do I know this? Take a look at your picture from like 20 years ago if you're old enough. What did you wear? What was your hairstyle like? Esther's laughing because I've seen your picture from 20 years ago. And my Esther too. I, I mean, I, I was going to run this by Esther, but I can't do it because I know I'll get in trouble at home. But, you know, she went through some phases where she has some looks. I was like, whoa, I don't know where that's coming from. Yeah, I've, seen, I've seen some of you ladies. I've seen some, and guys, I've seen some sweaters that guys have ro- worn in the past. I've seen the frizzy hair, the Madonna dudes, and all the stuff in the 80s. So, simply to say, it's not like we have this barometer that says we're immutable like God, unchangeable. We're steadfast in who we are. No, we're influenced. We're influenced by things all the time. You know? I mean, the fact that I have this shirt tucked out probably influenced by what I see out there. Because left to my own devices, I don't know if tucked in or tucked out is better. I don't have that... I don't have that fashion organ in my brain that tells me what's good or not, right? We are influenced. God created us to, influence, to be influenced and to influence others. So Jin, Young, Hilson, all of us, know that it's your responsibility to influence others. So next time you're thinking about making a decision, just know that it's not, you don't live to yourself and die to yourself. God calls us to influence and shape others, but we also need influences in our lives. We need models. And, and, and we have a dearth of models in our lives. We have, a lot of us are trying to wing this on our own. Like parents that have, you know, parents with young kids. I mean, how hard is it to try to be a parent not knowing anything, right? Or marriage or a job. I mean, imagine... Oh, imagine doing anything without having someone show you how to do something the first time or, or having someone to follow. It, it's just life would be impossible. God created us to model after people, but we have a dearth of models. So here's my practical application. Read the Bible, number one, okay? Because there are a lot of good models in there, right? Abraham. I mean, Abraham, you know, you know what irks me about reading? Everybody reads Abraham in January because it's Genesis, right? And we're all trying to read the Bible in a year. So we all read Abraham. I don't know if that's why he brought up Abraham. I was like, chapter 13, that's the week I'm on for my daily reading. Oh, that's where Pastor Jim got his inspiration. No. Uh, he's laughing, though. I think it's true. And you know what irks me about Abraham? It's like, it's like Abraham goes to, I, th- I forget, it's like Abimelech or one of these kings, and he lies. He lies, and his, his wife Sarah gets taken. And then, but God punishes him, the king, instead of Abraham, right? It's not like, oh, Abraham, you deceitful guy. It's like, You've taken the wife of a prophet, and now I will punish your house. And the guy's like, no, no, I didn't know. I mean, we read someone like Abraham, and uh, you read some people like uh, Moses and David, and what you realize, a couple of things. You realize they're humans. Like, oh, my God, you read about Jesus? Well, he's, not, he, he's human, but he's God. So it's like, okay, he's kind of unattainable. But when you read, when you, when you read the stories of people, you're like, they're human. When you read the stories of great heroes of the faith, like Martin Luther or, or Hudson Taylor, or, or there's so many. I, I, I need to really broaden my hero sort of trophy like because I, I haven't read too many biographies recently. I admit it. But I do, have, I do love biographies when I do get to read them. Um, um, read them, and you know what you realize? You realize they're just like you and me. And you know what also you realize? 
that living a life fully committed to God doesn't mean it's like all smooth sailing. It is rough. It struggles. And, and there's confusion. And you could be the most committed person, but you still go, you still struggle figuring out how to live life. And that's what inspires you. It inspires you to say, you don't have to be perfect. You don't have to have it all figured out to, to be fully committed to God. Being fully committed to God is this radical abandonment of trusting God. It doesn't mean you have it right. And I want to end, because Jim knows I've been wanting to bring this in for so long. Oh, you also realize when you read biographies that the ones that truly are fully committed to God, you realize it is God who sustains them. It is amazing. It is amazing how big God is and how small they are in terms of what they bring to the equation. Um, you know, sometimes I, like you, I have a distorted vision of what it means to live life fully committed to God. And, and my wife and Jen and some others know I go through these, these seasons of inner turmoil where I feel like I'm not living the way I should. Like, I, I feel a dis- disconnect between my faith and how I live. And so I, go, I get into this, like, crazy mode of, of despising myself. Like, I'm not who I should be. And just, you know, I get, I get, I get all crazy. I mean, I, I, she's laughing. I ruined the Las Vegas vacation one, one winter because of one of my... We were there having a great time, and I got into one of these modes. And I'm like, oh, vacation ruined. <laughs> you could ask me about that one day. But anyways, you know what, you know what comforts me? You know what comforts me? Is I read like the story of Dietrich Bonhoeffer. Jen gave me a biography of Bonhoeffer. Um, but I, I've, I've always been sort of, Bonhoeffer is one of those role models that I look to, or, or, or someone in the faith that I admire greatly. Um, Cost of Discipleship, I think. I mean, he's written a lot of books. Life Together is probably the best book on Christian community written almost ever. Um, and just to give you guys a brief uh, synopsis of who he is, you know, he was a Lutheran pastor in Germany during uh, Hitler's time. And uh, he really sort of was greatly grieved by the way that the church capitulated to Hitler and Nazis uh, during that time. And so he started a movement of a confessing church, of a church that would really uh, stand up to the evils of, of, of Hitler. And, and, and for him, through a difficult process, and it was a difficult process, and he gives some metaphors of, of this thinking process, he actually participated in an assassination attempt of Hitler, okay? And he got caught and then was sent to a concentration camp. And in, in April 1945, 23 days before Germany's surrender, he was hanged, okay? Now, while he was in prison, he wrote letters quite a bit, and he wrote while he was still in prison, and a lot of that remained today. And, and, and th- I want to read you this poem. I want to close with this poem, Okay? This gives me comfort, not because I'm like Bonhoeffer and Elizabeth, but because I can, I can model myself after this. This gives me hope. This is a poem called Who Am I? When I go through my crazy inward struggles, I, I, I really read this poem a lot. This is a poem of Who Am I by Dietrich Bonhoeffer. As he struggled in prison, as he suffered away in prison, he wrote this. And I'll close this message with this. Who am I? They often tell me I step from my cell's confinement calmly, cheerfully, firmly, like a squire from his country house. Who am I? They often tell me I used to speak to my warders freely and friendly and clearly, as though it were mine to command. 
Who am I? They also tell me I bore the days of misfortune equitably, smiling, proudly, like one accustomed to win. Am I then really all that which other men tell of? Or am I only what I myself, myself know of myself, restless and longing and sick, like a bird in a cage, struggling for breath as our hands were compressing my throat, yearning for colors, for flowers, for the voices of birds, thirsting for words of kindness, for neighborliness, tossing in expectation of great events, powerlessly trembling for friends at an infinite distance, weary and empty at praying, at thinking, at making, faint and ready to say farewell to all. Who am I? This or the other? Am I one person today and tomorrow another? Am I both at once, a hypocrite before others, and before myself a a contemplably woe-begone weakling? Or is something within me still like a beaten army, fleeing in disorder from victory already achieved? Who am I? They mock me, these lonely questions of mine. Whoever I am, thou knowest, O God, I am thine. We need models. We need people to imitate and follow. You be one. Let's be one to each other. Let's pray. Father God, we just want to ask you at this time that you would remind us that you do not leave us alone to live this life by our own strength. You gave us your spirit, but not only that, you gave us a community of people filled with the spirit, both past and present, to inspire us, to show us how to live life, to show us how to struggle, to encourage, to weep together, to rejoice together. Father God, help Cross Community Church be a church full of people who say to one another, follow my example and let me follow your example. Remind us that a life fully committed to you doesn't mean everything's going to be perfect, but it is a life that you have planned for us for our deepest happiness and joy. We love you. We thank you. In Jesus' mighty name we pray. Amen.